Well, good morning, everyone. Great to have you here today. I, I know uh, Sasha already gave you props for making it here on uh, Daylight Savings, uh, making it on time. But I know some of you actually thought you came to first service and you're here now. So <laughs> let's, let's be honest. So, um, and, and also Pastor Felipe this morning, we were talking, he didn't even know it's Daylight Savings. Uh, it's just your phone update. So it's, it's weird how different it is. When I first started ministry, this was the day when like people would come in an hour late every time. But most of us our alarm clocks figure out the time before us, so we don't have to know anymore. But anyway, it's great to be with you today. Uh, okay, we're going to jump right in uh, to our message. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 2. If you like to follow along, uh, you're always welcome to use a digital version of the Bible, or if you're comfortable just listening, you can do that as well. As we get started today, I want to ask you a question as we start, and the question is this. When you think of Jesus... What images come to your mind? So if you think of Jesus, what images come to your mind? Now, for some of you, maybe you're, you're thinking of the, the physical appearance of Jesus. I think like 30 or 40 years ago, uh, most of the art was, it was like an Italian Jesus. You know, that was what, what we saw most often. And, and it turns out that he was Middle Eastern Jew. So a lot of people have figured that out since then. But uh, so apart from the physical description of Jesus... What do you think about him? What are the images? Do you, do you picture Jesus as is your first image of him kind of like holding a lamb over his shoulders? Maybe this just really nice Jesus? A Jesus who is maybe always serious? He's always about, hey, you got to get down to business? Is it a fun Jesus? If you were to think about Jesus, what do you think makes him happy? What would make him laugh? What would make him mad? Does your Jesus ever get mad? Is your Jesus always mad? <laughs> See, a lot of the thoughts and images that we have in our mind about who Jesus is are hopefully we, we become more and more affected by what we read in scripture, but a lot of us have images of Jesus that are maybe just a response to our childhood or the response to things that we've seen or the way people have told us that we're supposed to think of him or maybe it's your experience of church growing up that has clouded your view or influenced your view of who Jesus is. And we're in this series through the book of John and in the book of John, I love it because John is writing about the life of Jesus and and it's one of the four Gospels, four of the books in the New Testament that talk about the life of Jesus. But John takes a little different approach. In fact, he tells stories that the other writers don't tell. He has a very personal relationship with Jesus. He's writing, it's the one that was written the latest of, of the four books. And so he had time to reflect and say, what is really important for people to know? Where are people getting some misunderstandings about him? What do we need to make sure people understand? And we believe probably at this time, John was the last living disciple. And so there's really an opportunity for him to make sure that we know who Jesus is. And we're going to read a story today that it really fits really well with the one we read last week. Where, and the one we're going to read next week. And the story we read today is going to give an image of Jesus that some of you maybe are familiar with. Others, maybe it's new. And I believe that it can sometimes be a misunderstood story. 
But between, and it's perfectly placed because last week we saw Jesus do something that didn't necessarily make a lot of sense. He performed a miracle in the story that we looked at last week that was, it, it was kind of a, a, a miracle of excess. It was one that didn't heal anybody. It didn't cast out a demon. There wasn't a, a really significant uh, life change that happened from his miracle. He turned water into wine. And so we looked at the story of why was that there, and there was some symbolism of Jesus saying we're at the end of religion, and he's establishing a new way of approaching God. Now the story we're going to look at this week is really a continuation. It it's, seems very disconnected, but John wants us to understand the, something more about Jesus today that builds on it. And it's going to lead into next week, we're going to read about a religious leader who's trying to process all this and say, okay, what does it really mean then? to apply this faith in you. And, and so I, I love how John talks about the story. And so as we get into the text today, would you just begin with me in some prayer and let's open our hearts to what God wants to do. God, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for this story. And I pray, Lord, as we read it, as we study, that you would open our hearts to you. Help us see who you are. Lord, would you take away all of our images and ideas that are false? And Lord, allow us to be transformed by your truth and your goodness and your grace. And today, Lord, set us free from religion. Set us free from um, not measuring up to you. God, I also pray that you'd set us free from the sin and the bondage that holds us. That you'd do a work in us. That we may be more in your image, more in your likeness. So we thank you and we give you this time. In your name, amen. All right, so let's go to John chapter 2, and I'm going to read a chunk of this story, and then we'll unpack it a little bit um, at a time. So John chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 13, and it starts off in, in John's writing. He says this, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples or their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. We're going to stop right there for a moment. So here's the story that, the, the scene that we see is Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and they're celebrating the Passover. Now Passover was one of the three major pilgrimage uh, religions or, or sorry, uh, festivals for the Jews. And so it's one where that you would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Passover would celebrate the uh, deliverance out of Egypt when they were enslaved uh, back in the time of Moses. And so every year you would go and sacrifice a Passover lamb if you were able. If you were unable to make a sacrifice of a lamb, there's other, you could go in with other families. Uh, we know some of the temple sacrifices. You could perhaps sacrifice a dove or whatever if you're going to the temple for worship. But Jews would go to Jerusalem and they would participate in this celebration. Now, in Jerusalem, we know at the time of Christ that most of the Passovers would have an extra one to, some people say, several hundred thousand more people in Jerusalem than normal. 
than normally. So we know that it was such, it was one of those big pilgrimage events that think of Encinitas all of a sudden having an extra two or 300,000 people. So it's like, you know, August downtown is what it would feel like, right? And, and, and so the, the Jerusalem all of a sudden is packed with people and people would travel from all over to come and to sacrifice in the temple and then celebrate the Passover meal and then that would begin what's called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is a week afterwards uh, where they would just remember the, the events in the Exodus. But because people traveled for so long, many of them did not bring their own animals to sacrifice. You would go to Jerusalem and you would find animals that are already approved by the priesthood that were without blemish that you could use for sacrifice. And a side note, as many of these animals, we believe, were actually the ones raised by the shepherds on the hills outside of Jerusalem, which would have been in the region of, Beth, of Bethlehem. So there's some really cool symbolism when Jesus was born and the angels appeared to the shepherds and said, hey, the Lamb of God is here. The ones that they're raising the lambs, the actual lambs for sacrifice, but then they were the first to hear of the birth of Jesus. That's a different story, but a cool event. So these Animals, many of them were raised and already approved, and they'd bring them to the temple area, somewhere around the temple. People could buy animals for sacrifice instead of traveling all the distance with them. Now, something else happened if you were to visit the temple, as they had what was called a temple tax. Essentially, it was a, a, each person's donation to their church, if you think of it that way. It was to send kids to camp and to fund, you know, the outreach programs, all those things. So they went and they had this thing called the temple tax. Now, the, the, So people would come and give money to support the temple. Now, they couldn't give the currency of the day because it was Roman coins that had the images and likeness of Caesar, Caesar on those coins. So to the Jews, they'd say, we're not going to do anything, put anything in the image or honoring or glorifying Caesar into the offering. So... There were money changers outside of the temple that you could exchange your currency for approved currency to use in the temple. So the picture of what we have going on here is Jesus shows up at the temple. It's during Passover. There's people everywhere. And what's happened, though, is the people buying and selling the, or selling the animals for sacrifice and the money changers who were uh, helping pro uh, provide for people to be able to give their temple tax were no longer just doing it in a way that would be seen appropriate. Now, they were providing a service that was necessary, but something about how they were providing it had changed. And, and so we have this picture now of Jesus shows up at the temple, and we see him, he, he sits down or whatever, and he starts making a whip of cords. Now, think of that for a moment. Think of what that would look like for Jesus to do, the, do so. And we don't know what he used to make the whip of cords. We think it was probably ropes that were tying up animals. Some people say it was straw. That doesn't sound very intimidating to me. But so I went with rope. Sounds better. But so we see that he makes a whip of cords. Now, what was that like? Because I've always heard this story, and I kind of always pictured a pretty angry Jesus. A, a Jesus that maybe is even a little bit unhinged. I mean, we see that he turns over the tables. We see that he dumps out the coins. But before all that, it says that he made a whip of cords. So he sat down and he decided he was going to do something. 
And in that moment, what would that look like? Was he just sitting there fuming and looking at everyone? Was this one of those moments like when you're a kid and you are getting in trouble and your mom says, just wait till your father gets home? Or is it the, why don't you go to your room for a little while and think about what you've done and we'll come talk to you about it later? Teenagers, isn't that the worst? That, that's, that's the worst. Just be mad at me right away, right? But Jesus sits down, perhaps. Whatever he does is he, makes, he takes time to make a whip. This is a very methodical, measured event that he's about to do. This is not an unhinged Jesus. This is not a Jesus who's not in control. Now, some people have made this story about how to uh, control your anger. I don't think that's the point of the story, but there's some good points in it, are there not? It, there's this righteous anger that Jesus has, and he takes the time to make the whip, I know some of you maybe grew up in the era where that was the go find your own switch or whatever. Um, I didn't grow up in that era. Uh, I don't think you can do that anymore, but uh, back there was a time. Some of you, I know that's your stories. Maybe that's similar. But whatever it was, as Jesus took the time to think about what he was about to do. And so that's a first hint for us to know that what, what happens in the story, there, there's something very intentional and with Jesus, there's always more than what meets the eye. There's always multiple lessons that are happening at the same time. So as he makes the whip, and then he goes, and we see that he, he clears out the temple area. He tells people to leave. He, he, what does that look like to dump out the coins? Did he just walk up to them and take their bag of coins and say, just dump them everywhere? He turned over the tables. Did he throw them, or did he just kind of go, you're done? It's interesting that he makes this, this whip of cords, and he, does he hit someone with it? He doesn't say he did. I actually don't think he did. But he drives them out. It even says this. He goes to those who are selling the doves, and looks, looks what he, sorry, look what he says to them. To those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. So he didn't even run up and open all the dove cages and make them fly away. He chases the animals out, and then he says, okay, those of you with the doves, take them, get out of here. This is actually a very measured, a very methodical Jesus cleansing the temple. So when we have this idea of him whipping and saying, get out of here, perhaps he's doing that. But, there's, but he's cleansing it. He's clearing it for a reason. And I don't think it's an unhinged Jesus. So what's happening? To understand a little bit more, I think uh, we're going to go into classroom mode for a moment. I want to paint a picture of the whole story. So we have some images. I want to show you the first one here. This is um, a picture that was taken during the time of Jesus of, uh, of the Temple Mount. And... <laughs> So this is obviously an archaeological rendering of what they believe that everything looked like at the time of Jesus based on archaeological evidence. Uh, the Temple Mount is that huge square area that still exists to this day. But where the temple stood, that's where is now the Dome of the Rock. So if you have images of Jerusalem, it's that shiny gold dome that exists today. That is right where the temple is in this image. As you look at the next slide, it goes in a little bit more, and you can see a little bit more closely. You'll notice that there is a kind of a small fence that borders the outside of the temple, kind of dividing the area on the Temple Mount. 
Inside that area is an area called the Court of the Gentiles. This was an area that was allowed, uh, if you were not a Jew, you were allowed to go to that area of the temple. And many Jews would go there, and they would actually pray to, God, to the God of Israel. They would worship the God of Israel. And they did that in that area called the Court of the Gentiles. The next uh, image kind of gives a different uh, view of it. This is a model that was created. And you can see that there's a fence that's, uh, you know, just kind of a small, almost like a barrier fence that we would see at a parade or something. That was what they believe is somewhat how Josephus, one of the historians, describes was the fence that separated where the court of the Gentiles is. And you can see in another fence that in there, that's where you would pass if you were, uh, if you were um, a Jew. You could go through there, and there was a section where men and women could go, and then a section where only men could go. So that's kind of what it looked like. Now, the Gentiles were only allowed to be in that area, that kind of outer area, as you can see. And this is where we believe, and historians believe, where the money changers and the people buying and selling, or sorry, selling the animals had moved into. So it no longer was outside the temple. It wasn't even in that promenade there that you might see in the background. But they had moved to the court of Gentiles, and this is where they were when Jesus came in. And this is where the Gentiles were allowed to go and no further. So think of this for a moment. If you were a Gentile and you were going to worship God of Israel, you were trying to learn and go and make your prayers, and all of a sudden, all around you, there's money changers, there's animals, there's distraction, there's all these things going on that would affect your experience. Now, we know the Gentiles couldn't go any further. Again, historians talked about it. And then this next slide is an actual, uh, this is actually a stone that was found that we have two, two copies of this. One is not as intact as this. And as you can see from what it says, um, it's pretty significant. So um, let's move on. Uh, <laughs> actually, this inscription here is in Greek. And uh, essentially what it says this is it says, uh, no stranger, and this is put inside the court of the Gentiles on the entrance to where the Jews were allowed to go. It says, no stranger or foreigner is able to enter within this, this area around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. Talk about a, you know, no trespassing, violators will be persecuted sign. <laughs> This one says, hey, if you go past here and you're a Gentile, it's your fault when you die. Okay, that's, that's what the sign says, essentially. This sign was there. Jesus would have known it's there. And you have the Gentiles trying to worship God. They know they can't go into another space. And this is the area in which we see Jesus cleansing, clearing out the temple. Now let's go back to the story and see what Jesus says. As we saw there, he, he tells them to leave in, in verse 16. Go from here. Take these things from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered what was written that says, zeal for your house will consume me. So in the story, what we know is that there's something about the zeal for God's house. Now, what's God's house? At the time of Jesus, the Jews would believe it's the temple. It's a place where God's glory dwelled. They believed that his, his presence dwelled there. In fact, in the Holy of Holies was a place in the temple that one priest could enter only one time per year. And when that priest entered to, 
to make a sacrifice one time per year, that priest actually had a bell attached to his robe in case he dropped dead in the presence of God. So if they didn't hear the bell ringing, they'd say, ah, lost another one to the Holy of Holies. There was this reverence, this belief that God's presence was there in the temple, in the house of God. So Jesus looks at what's happening and, and something in him says, this is not right. Quit making my father's house a place of business. So they're violating what the purpose of this place is, to come near to God. I even believe that there's something about the fact that they're in the court of the Gentiles. They're making it so Jesus, and we're going to find through the book of John, was all about welcoming in those who are outside. By chapter 4, we're going to have a beautiful story of Jesus breaking through some of those religious barriers and saying, I'm available to all people. So in this, even this story, I think that Jesus is saying, look, you're not even allowing the Gentiles to worship in this place. You're just making it about a business. And so he cleanses, he chases everyone out. And the disciples remembered this verse. It says, zeal for the house of the Lord will consume me. Now that's based on Psalm chapter 69. We have that for you here. We have verse 8 and 9 for you. This psalm is known as what's called a messianic kind of prophecy. David is writing it, and it has to do with himself, and yet also about the future Messiah. And part of it is this is speaking of the Messiah, says this, that I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children, and zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So this is what the disciples kind of connect the dots and say, oh, Jesus is, the, he's the Messiah. He's proclaiming this. The zeal for God's house is what consumes him. Now think of this. Last week, we noticed a story where Jesus interacted with his mother. And he, he used this term for his mother. He said, ma'am, not mother. We believe that that was his way of saying, I'm now about my father's business, that father in heaven. So again, John puts this story right the next story of I'm about my father's business. And zeal for this house consumes me. Now, a couple things. Why did Jesus use a whip? Why did he make a whip if he was not being violent with it? I really believe that the story and this imagery of the whip wasn't about violence. It wasn't about hurting anyone. It was about authority. He was showing up and saying, I'm cleansing this temple. I want you to know I have the right to drive you out, and I'm driving you out from this place. Now, why do we think that? Because notice how the teachers of the law respond to Jesus as the story continues. Verse 18. The Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us that you have authority to do those things? What gives you the right? What gives you the authority? So he's proclaiming he has authority. Now Jesus answered them and he said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, yet you think you can rebuild it in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So what do we really see in this story? What's going on? What's the second meaning? The first thing that we see is Jesus obviously is frustrated with what's happening. He's frustrated with how they're using God's house, the place where you're to encounter the loving, the living God, the temple of the Lord. But zeal consumes him. But why does he have zeal for his father's house? Why does Jesus have zeal for the father's house? What does that really look like? 
Why was cleansing so imp- of the temple so important? Because if, if we think about this, if it's no longer about religion, if you remember last week, the story was about the end of religion. It's not about ceremonial cleansing your hands. It's not about making the right sacrifices. It's not about doing all the right things to make yourself acceptable in the eyes of God. If Jesus is saying that's over, then why is he bugged that they are not doing things right at the temple? What, what, what is consuming him about God's house? And there's two things I believe. The first thing is this, because Jesus, it's all about his life with us. In other words, it's all about relationship. One thing that frustrates him is that the the, the temple was symbolic of God's presence, and the very thing that God wants is a relationship with you and with me and with his people. And when we put false expectations and even distractions and even things that might be good things and then we make them about consuming and we make them about uh, all this other things that get in the way of that relationship, I believe that's burning at the, house, uh, at the heart of God. So the fact that the Gentiles weren't accepted would, would, would frustrate Jesus. The fact that Jews were being exploited and one of the things that were likely happening is the money changers were... were robbing people. They were charging excess of uh, exchange fees. And uh, they, then after that, they started a whole bunch of exchange shops and r- airports across the world. So that's, that's where this started. And, and so currency exchange, all of a sudden, they were, they were probably exploiting people. The animals, they were probably marking up the prices. And they're blaming it on supply chain and all of the things. <laughs> See, it all still co- it all comes back. And so Jesus was frustrated. You're making the worship of me. Now it's about a business and not about me. Now you're actually even preventing people from worshiping me. And so Jesus is thinking, zeal for my house. My, it's all about relationship with his people. Now here's the great thing about the Messiah. We learn that in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. He said, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. So actually, the place where the temple, which used to represent the dwelling place of God, is now in Christ himself. God has become flesh. John chapter 1, he tells us, the word became flesh and dwells among us. The presence of God is near, and he wants a relationship with you and with me. And anything that starts to get in that way consumes him. So religion will consume him. But here's the other thing. The uncleanliness, the sin that starts to consume He wants to cleanse us from that. I believe that's a double meaning in this. So first, it is that, why does he have that zeal? Because he wants that relationship. It's about his life with us. The second part is, I believe, it's about his life in us. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul writes, and he says this, Now that uh, in Christ, we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, I will be their God and they will be my people. We now are that place where God's glory dwells. We are the ones with whom God shows his, his presence. And this, we are the ones now where people can see and come into the presence of God through you and through me. And that zeal consumes Jesus. So in this story, we have him frustrated when we're being prevented from coming to him and also all the other things that we add that cloud our life with him. There's a cleansing. 
Now, I want you to notice this. I think it's really important. In chapter 2, last week's story, it was about Jesus transforming us. Not using religion to shape us, but his life in us. It was about being converted by Jesus. This week is about being cleansed. Don't get the order wrong. How many times do we add things to prevent people or keep people from encountering God? What are the, the barriers that we have put up before them? Oh, you have to do these right things. You have to be cleansed first, then converted. No, Jesus converts first, then he cleanses. And what are the barriers that we put up for other people? to Say, you can't come to Jesus yet. Look at your life. You can't think that way and become a Christian. What are the barriers? Throughout the history of Christianity, we've put up barriers. We've worked through some of them. Some of them we have not. There's a barrier in 1517. It was when Martin Luther wrote about, hey, the way we're, we're creating barriers for people to come to Jesus. You have to pay for indulgences just to be forgiven for your sins. That's a barrier. And so they, we, we, that was where the Reformation started. But then we added all kinds of new barriers. Some of you grew up in an era when you had barriers like, you can't dance and be a Christian. How could you do that? Play cards and be a Christian? No, you need to get rid of that card playing out of your life if you want to be in the presence of God. Some of you, maybe you can relate well. When I first became a youth pastor, the big deal was this. You can't have tattoos and be a Christian. That was a barrier. There's no way Jesus is powerful enough to forgive you for that. Kind of got quiet in here. You guys don't... <laughs> the next elephant room discussion will be about tattoos, I guess. I, don't... I thought we were done with that one. Jesus wants to rid us of all of those things that keep us from that relationship with him. He wants to get rid of all those things that cloud that to know him and be in his presence and that prevent others. And so he comes and he cleanses. But first he transforms. And as we end our time and transition into a time of communion here, I want to remind you of John chapter 20, verse 30. John says this, that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. See, these stories are so that we may have life in his name. When Jesus said these things, the Jews said, who gives you the authority to do this? And he says, tear down the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they were very literal. They said, oh, it took 46 years to build this. Can you possibly do that? And then later the disciples said, oh, do you think, after he rose from the dead, they said, do you think actually when he said that, he meant on the third day he would rise up? The temple, he's the temple. He rose up. That's the sign that we can believe that what he says is true. The resurrection of Jesus is the thing that reminds us that we can trust this, that he wants to be with us. So I'm going to invite uh, Matt Jarvin in. He's one of our elders to come up and lead us in a time of communion because communion remembers the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we reflect and, and, and take this time of communion, may we do so remembering that this is a sign that we can trust and believe who Jesus is and what he says.